This is Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture. I'm Amy Brown. Today we're bringing you a discussion between authors Carrie Arsenal and Monica Wood called Remembering Maine. It was recorded at the online 2020 Word Festival in Blue Hill in October of 2020. Welcome to our Saturday night event of the Word Festival, Blue Hills Festival of the Literary Arts. Um, I also need to um, make a few thank yous before we start. We're grateful as always to Blue Hill Community Development, our fiscal sponsor, and to Community Radio, WERU-FM, Word's media partner, um, who helps us with promotional and technical details. Um, Blue Hill Public Library, which co-sponsors some of our events during normal non-pandemic years, this year has graciously invited us to take advantage of their super fast internet, which is why you see these shelves in the background. I'm in the, um, the Blue Hill room of the, of the Blue Hill Public Library, and we thank them for that. So tonight we have a really special event. We have two incredibly talented writers who have written about Maine. Uh, Carrie Arsenault is a book critic, book editor at Orion Magazine, and a contributing editor at the Literary Hub. Milltown, Reckoning with What Remains, is her first book, and it's about the connection between the cancer rate in and around the town of Rumford, Maine, and the paper mill that provided most of the area's inhabitants with their livelihood, and how how people dealt with that connection or didn't deal with it, as the case may be. Milltown was a New York Times editor's choice pick, and the Minneapolis Star Tribune called it trenchant and aching and a model of persistence, thoughtful reflection, and vividly human personal narrative, which is such a great description. Um, Monica Wood, who is our other speaker, is a novelist, memoirist, and playwright. Her most recent novel, the One in a Million Boy won the 2017 Nautilus Award, Gold, and the New England Society Book Award. It was described as exquisitely crafted by the Guardian newspaper in the UK. And she is also the author of When We Were Kennedys, winner of both the May Sarton Memoir Award and the 2016 Maine Literary Award. And that is also a memoir of growing up in Maine, which is what we are so looking forward to hearing both of them talk about tonight. Welcome, Carrie and Monica, and um, go forth and converse. Hi, Hi Monica. <laughs> so glad I to see you. I know, and I, I should clarify to everybody, not only did we write about Maine, but we wrote about the same town in Maine. Yes. We grew up, what, blocks from each other, not Correct. Of um, 14 years apart? Is that yeah. yeah. So Mexico, Maine. Yeah. So I, I really want to start and say that I'm, so I'm younger in case you didn't know. I mean, Monica looks like she's 14 herself. I'm the younger one, but she was two <laughs> <laughs> years apart. Hard to believe. But um, when her book came out, it came out in 2012, was it? When yes. The Kennedys. So I'm talking about her memoir. When it came out, I had just started doing book criticism and I had started my book in 2009. So mine took 10 years to write. And her book came out when I was in the middle of sort of writing, starting to write mine. And I was like, oh no, <laughs> somebody's <laughs> writing a book about me. Like how many books can there be? Yeah, it was, it was horrifying. But I ended up saying, I've got to read this, right? And um, 
of course, I read it and I reviewed it. I didn't know Monica, so it was a legitimate review. We didn't know each other. And I couldn't believe how I couldn't believe how many things were similar, not in just what the, our, our, our paths that we walked, like the how we saw the world on foot, mainly, I guess, in Mexico, right? Because, mm-hmm. because we didn't have cars. We just yeah. walked everywhere. <laughs> but like, our paths were so similar. Even our words were similar in some ways. And her opening was like my open. It was, or mine was like hers, however you want to put it. Anyway, it was like, it was like both terrifying and comforting to, to read that, that first passage. And it was also very upsetting. It made me so cry. I couldn't even read it out loud. It was so beautifully Aww. written. Um, so anyway, that's all to say that I just, I found it remarkable that we can come from two different sort of lives, two different generations and, and have that same, um, the same routine that we saw. And it's like, I felt like I felt like when you, when you walk that kind of familiar path, like our fathers did across the footbridge, which you even said, and I said in my book, and it was that, it's that kind of routine and the myths and the monuments and the places and the reminders that sort of carve deep ruts in our brain, you know? Um, And I just, anyway, so I guess this is all to ask or say, I don't know. Um, you you wrote to me today there are endless I said something to you about paths and you said there are endless endless paths out of one place and I want to ask you what was your path out of that place that I came from too I think it was probably very similar to yours Carrie you know I I had really good now did you go to Mexico high school or Mexico so we're both pintos Yes. Yes. Okay. Because the schools, for people who don't know, the schools merged after you were finished. Um, Yes. Now there's one school for both towns and it's called Mountain Valley High School, but we are both Mexico high school graduates. Um, So yeah, my, it was very similar. You know, I had some great teachers in high school. I think I had a fantastic education, also an elementary school education. I went to St. Teresa's and um, the nuns were amazing teachers and when I was in high school, my sister, Anne, who, you know, was my high school teacher there. Um, so I, you know, I did the same thing that a lot of kids did who had the opportunity as I went to college out of state. But unlike you, I returned very soon. And I think, except for the fact that of my mother's death when I, when I was a senior in college, I think I would have stayed in Washington. Hmm. But... I came back because I really wanted to be home. I really wanted to, well, the same thing that called you home when your dad died, you know? So I I think my path would have been more similar to yours had my mother not gotten sick and died while I was in college. So, um, but shortly after that, I was, I stayed in town for a year um, as a substitute teacher at the junior high, which is where Anne was. I do that too. (laughs) Really? There you go. Um, and then I moved to Portland and I have been in Portland, Maine ever since. And you've lived in uh, like all over the place because partly because your husband is in the military, he's in the Coast Guard. Right. Right. And partly for maybe trying to find a job anywhere I could. Yeah. yeah. But I think because of the different places we ended up, you know, we couldn't possibly have written the same book about returning home. Because for me, returning home is, is different from how you returned home. Totally. I was thinking about that too. It's like, I, I mean, I thought a lot about, I don't, did you think a lot about that as you were writing that memoir about returning home? It, because 
it was really like a it was like basically the plot of my book was like leaving it, and coming and definitely leaving. yes yeah, yeah. And it's funny because I, I one of the notes I had on your book was that um I remember when I was on main calling a little while ago and yeah. you were trying to describe your book and I, I and when you did I thought oh I have to call her and tell her she has to do a better job describing this book I thought no but you can't say it's this that and the other but then I read it and you have to describe it in a myriad way like that because it's not just one thing you know mine is when we were the Kennedys it's a memoir about growing up in Mexico Maine in one year you know it's one right. year it's 1963 um, when there's a strike my father dies and the Kennedy assassination so it's a very um contained easy like, contained vessel yeah. Yeah. and yours is more like trying to wrestle an octopus you know so you are you're writing um a piece of investigative journalism about uh, pollution and the and corporate uh culpability mm. and non-culpability or avoiding culpability you're writing uh, a book about looking for your family history your franco-american roots your acadian roots in, in particular um and also it's a story about, you know, the girl who left and keeps coming back and then goes away and then comes back. And I'm, I'm thinking it, it does feel disparate in that sense, but the overarching theme is of leaving and returning, departure oh, and return, yeah. not just literally that you keep leaving home and coming back again, but you also take these points of departure from anecdotes you hear from the doctor's widow in town about what the mill was covering up. Um, it could be, uh, uh, or studies that you read about pollution and everything. And that, so that's your departure point. And then you're connecting these dots and the same with your family. Like, Oh, I think we were from this town in blah, blah in France. I guess so I'll go all the way to freaking France to connect those dots. And they, they just dissolve. And so you're always departing from somewhere and then coming back from where you started. And so my first question for you is when I know it took you a long time to write the book. And sometimes we don't really know what we're writing about for quite some time. But I wondered when it, when it occurred to you that you were writing a book about departing and returning. I think honestly, it was in the last, um, last semester of the book, um, which was, 2019. So I finished the book in 2019. And it was, it was written the finalish draft. And I, 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 I hired an outside editor, basically my friend, the editor at Orion magazine, I asked him to help me figure some things out, like to help me, I had the structure in mind. And the structure was really um, the Androscoggin River, which is why it feels so, you know, meandery but I needed something. And so what he did, honest to God, he took my manuscript and he took all the plot out and he took all the descriptions and put them on another page. And it was three pages of me going home and returning. Mm. And that's when it all like gelled and I could really put the chapters in an, in the place that they needed to be. And so it wasn't until 2019. And like I said, I started the book in 2009. So yeah, it was- um, but that makes perfect sense to me because um, it, it does take a really long time. And it's not like you were writing just one book. You know, you were writing, it, it's more than one story that you're threading through there. And right. so, yeah. And it was like, and I was going to say this too, and we're related to you and related to our paths and related to home. Um, 
I really, I think I even have a deeper understanding of it even now after having so many conversations about it. I feel like, I feel like what I was doing the whole time was like triangulating home, right? So Mm -hmm. like when I, it was, it was me having this perspective of time and distance, you know, in being an insider and an outsider to my town, looking at the past and the present and the, in the, in the future, even at one point, um, also what it was and what I thought it was like that kind of mm-hmm. nuance. And then, you know, I was also someone writing a book about it. So I was like this other weird, I don't know what performance that was, but, um, and then I actually got involved in the town, you know, as a, right. in a water, water rights activist and, It was really interesting. And then from historical through family science, love and labor, sort of all these different perspectives. And what I realized is I was like, just really honing in on home and identity really is what the book is, the nugget that, you know, it's placed in environmental shelves, which I'm happy to have it in a science environment. But I I really think it's about identity. Yeah, I I think so too. And that's that's what the search really boils down to is what is the truth of all these different things, but it's really, what is the truth of who I am? Yeah, and I mean, I was thinking about, it's hard not to think about my book when I'm reading your book. I mean, I feel like actually our books could have been blended together and been one big book. (laughs) I mean, really, it could, yours could have been like, I don't know. If we do a movie, we should do it together. Anybody's listening. um, (laughs) Um, But it's, I don't know about you, but part of the part of the issue I had was like, how do we sort of reckon? And that's in my subtitle, but like, how do we wreck? How did you reckon with a like a home that didn't necessarily love you back? Mm-hmm. And I mean that by, you know, your your father's death in this mm-hmm. book at least. Mm-hmm. How do you how do you forgive it? I think that I, I <laughs> Well, you know, my book has, you. I don't has know. a different, oh, definitely. I mean, the last line of my memoir is I forgive you yeah. and I'm speaking to the mill. You know, I, the last two lines are, I love you. I forgive you. You know, looking at this and the mill is this kind of monstrous character in my memoir. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think that because my childhood experience of the mill, um, it was in, it was pre- scab strikes yeah they, i was gonna well, ask strike you, yeah what's it, it, what the strike of 64 actually and it there uh, were no they didn't bring in replacement workers you know the the salary people came in to keep the machines running they kept a skeleton crew but there was no for the most part there wasn't the rancor and the other thing that i think was different in the in, at the time that i'm writing which is the you know early 60s um, is that there wasn't the obscene difference between what, say, the CEO made oh. and what the rank and file, you know, it, yeah, it had already been. And the other thing is the mill that I'm writing about is still the Oxford Paper Company, which yeah. is the first, you know, it was owned by one family for 75 years. Yeah. And then by the time you came around was just, you were born in 67. Yeah. Seven. So Ethel bought it in 67. Correct. So you were born the the first year that things started to turn and Ethel was not a paper company. No, it was chemical. So it was a big, big, it was a sea change. And then, you know, so many more rounds after that of people buying it, et cetera. And, and now, 
you know, Nine Dragons owns it. And, you know, the I wrote a play called Papermaker that came I have not on. seen it. I'm dying to see it. Well, I hope you are, might get a chance at some point. But um, but that one actually came from Ernie's Ark, which is a, a book of fiction I wrote that's set in Abbott Falls, which my husband's last name is Abbott. So of I named it so his parents would get a kick out of it. Um, and actually that just came out again in paperback, like an anniversary edition. And look what they put on the cover, Carrie. Do you recognize this? Look, it's the Rumford Mill. Oh my God. That's Isn't that crazy. the most, look at this cover. I'm, I ordered it. I don't have it yet. So that's it upsetting. Is such, so. It is like my favorite cover of any book I've ever had. Um, love it. I, yeah, I know. I just love it so much. Um, but uh, in, there's a line in Papermaker where the Ernie's, it, it's based on Ernie's arc and Ernie is a character in the play. And he says at one point to the CEO, and it's a long, complicated story how they end up in the same room together. But he said the CEO is defending himself because they're in the middle of this horrible strike. Mm-hmm. And he says, um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to keep this place afloat. They're coming for us, my friend. And Ernie says, who? And he says, the CEO says, the Chinese, for starters, who invented paper. I wrote this like, you know, and now lo and behold, look who owns the mill right now. You're listening to Main Currents on WERU-FM. This is a discussion between authors Carrie Arsenal and Monica Wood called Remembering Maine. It was recorded at the online 2020 Word Festival in Blue Hill in October. That's incredible. Well, it's funny because that's another aspect of the book that um, in an introduction and that I didn't say, but it's also my book on a larger scale is about the rise and fall of the American working class. Yeah, I really found that very resonant. I loved that part of the book. Because it did. It went from like a mill owner, one guy, to his family, to a... Mm -hmm. And Ethel was a chemical company, I'm pretty sure. Yes, it was. Yes. And then, you know, conglomerate and this and this and then China. Mm-hmm. Like, I know. You can't make that up. You know, well, at one point it was held by New Page. Right. Was that what it was called? Yeah, I think it was called New Page, which was basically a holding company. Yeah. I mean, you think they gave two hoots about paper? They didn't. That was a nice way to say it. Yes. Yeah, I know. That's, in fact, no. you have a great line in your in in when we were the Kennedys. I'm sorry to keep bringing it up, but it was so meaningful to me. But what did you say? Wait, I wrote it down here somewhere. Oh, you said Dad loved. So I should tell everybody, Hugh Chisholm was the founder of our mill in 1901 or whatever. Two. You said Dad loved Hugh Chisholm's mill, and that's a fact. But the men in Manhattan did not love Dad. Mm. That's why, I guess that's why I was like, how do you forgive that? Like, mm-hmm. like I'm not sure I'm there yet. Even though I'm I didn't definitely even... there yeah. because I think about my father's life and he, you know, he dropped out of a heart attack at 57 um, in part, I believe, because of the working life he had. But he, you know, he also, again, and as you discover in your book, it's very hard to separate these things, you know, God, I mean, the food they ate and he was a chain smoker and, you know, all these things. So it's hard to separate those things, which makes corporate wrongdoing very easy to hide. Um, But I think of what my father's life would have been if he'd he was from Prince Edward Island. Mm -hmm. Um, They had a family farm that was, you know, barely squeaking by. And when he was 20 years old, he crossed the border and came to Mexico and Rumford looking for a job 
and got one, a really good paying job where you could, know. you know, when I was a kid, like, well, maybe when I was very young, mm-hmm. um, Rumford had the highest income in the state. Yeah, I, it was pretty, I mean, my father put four of us through college. Yeah. I mean, you could. My mother, she's here now on this call. I'm not saying she didn't contribute. She did. She went Hi, back. Maddie. Hi, <laughs> hey, mom. Um, but yeah, they they made really good money. Um, yeah, they did. I mean, you could raise your and kids a pension and your health care. Yeah, your wife could stay home and take care of the family. It was you know the classic nuclear family. Um, the that was the American dream at the time. Uh, Although we were being killed by it. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what you. I know. So I I guess going back. So my point is that I think of what my father's life would have been without the mill. And so there's a certain gratitude in it. Even it's a weird gratitude. It's, it's a very weird mix of feelings, but I have to tell you that a mile from, I live in Portland, Maine, and a mile from my house is evergreen cemetery. Not even a mile. I can walk there in 15 minutes. And there's this big, you've probably seen it, this mausoleum, that is the Chisholm family. Yes. Crypt. Yeah. And I go there frequently. I ride my bike over there or whatever. And I will sit on the steps of Hugh Chisholm's thing. And I go, and this is what I do. I say, hi, I'm Monty. And my dad worked in your mill. And I just want to thank you for the yeah. mill. You know, yeah. I mean, it's, it's maybe it's kind of like weird and twisted, but I do feel a deep gratitude as well. No, I do too. I, I don't, I don't think that's twisted at all. I think, I think what it is complicated for is people who didn't live our life. Yes. For them to understand it. Like there is a one review, which I was grateful for in the New York times, but yeah, it said something like people clinging to their obstinacy. It was not a characterization I used for the people. No. She right. was characterizing them as being obstinate. <clears throat> I thought, no, they weren't being obstinate. They were being loving in yeah. in doing those jobs and in like providing for our lives right. and you and I went to college and look what we're you know look right what we're doing now you know we're yeah. doing like something we dreamed of doing when we were mm-hmm. young mm-hmm. speaking of I'm giving a shout out right now to a lovely English teacher I had Sally Jones who's on this call oh great <laughs> no, Sally anyway <laughs> like, I was so grateful for yeah I, I think it's really hard for other people to understand that conundrum but in, in some of the talks I've been doing, I've been trying to put it in other terms, like we all make compromises mm-hmm. daily about what we're willing to sacrifice and what we're willing to not sacrifice. Mm-hmm. You know, even I was talking to author Elizabeth Rush and she was like, you know, she's an environmental writer. She got it. She was a runner up in, for the Pulitzer for her book about um, water rising. And she's like, she just had a baby and she orders things on Amazon. Well, what is Amazon? Oh. You know, and she's like, yeah. it's convenient. I can't leave the house and it's the pandemic. And it's like, you know, there's a choice, you know, mm-hmm. we're not all, I'm not trying to throw Elizabeth under the bus or anything, but, but we all make compromises. And I think mm-hmm. everybody has to just sort of, and, and part of what I really, I wanted to do too, is like have people just step back and look at this town and look at people and try to understand the choices they make, including, but not limited to voting for Donald Trump. Yeah. <laughs> Just to throw that out there for a second, <laughs> which they did. Um, you know, our town was the biggest flip in the state, surprisingly. It did flip, but uh, they voted. I mean, it's going to be I, this. It's going to be very interesting It'll this year. Interesting. Yeah. But speaking of throwing people under the bus, Carrie, Arsenal. Yeah. Okay. 
Um, one of the most moving chapters in the book for me was your account of the Grand Arrangement. Oh. The, you know, the Acadian yeah. being... expulsion uh, or... Technically. Well, technically. Yeah. Yeah. But in that... I'd like you to talk about the Grand Derangement, but I didn't think you needed to throw Anne of Green Gables under the bus while you're at it. Oh, I <laughs> she was my heroine as a child of in my Irish heritage. Um, so that was my one quibble. You're like, I could see you sitting like there. Anne, like you're really, you're really going after I'm Anne. Going of after Gables. Anne. I did. A little messy. I might go after her even more, maybe. <laughs> um, but I, I will make sure it's justified. Um, yeah. yeah, and it wasn't, it, you know, it's interesting. But if you could just talk about the Grand Arrangement, just say for people who don't know yeah, what I'll it be, is and how it happened. It's pretty, it's complicated, but briefly, um, you know, the Acadians um, came to the maritime provinces, largely New Brunswick, uh, Nova Scotia, Prince Edward Island. <laughs> in the early 1600s. And then they lived happily and peacefully among the Mi'kmaq and among themselves and made a prosperous life. I mean, I'm not gonna say it wasn't tough or anything. Of course it was tough back in those days and with nothing there, but um, they lived there happily. And, and But meanwhile, over in the continent, the English and the French were constantly warring with each other. So that carried over into the maritime province, which was known as Acadia, I'll just say Acadia. And um, in 1755, after many back and forths, um, the British came and loaded the, um, loaded the Acadians on ships and shipped them out down through New England, some to France, down to the Caribbean. They forced families apart. They were ruptured. The women, children, husbands, brothers, all were separated. A lot of people died. It was a forced expulsion with an underlying racist intent to... Um, and... After that, there was no longer in Acadia, and which was also part of the search in the book. It's like, I'm looking for a place that actually no longer exists, which yeah. is similar to Rumford in Mexico too. It doesn't exist the way we grew up anymore, right? right? No. Um, yeah, no. So that, that Acadian uh, identity, that's how I connected it to sort of this other search that I was doing, like searching for home. And, you know, I went to Prince Edward Island and I went back to France to try to sort of trace those, those lines, the lineage, but also the reasons why that made them leave or made them um, come here in the first place. And it, it was just, it was a really fascinating, you know, it's not to say you go and you say, oh my God, I understand them. No, but there is a historical reach and somebody talked to me about this. I find this such a fascinating thing. I knew my great-grandmother, right? And she knew her great-grandmother. Mm. Think about how many, my historical reach goes back to like the 1700s with that. Mm-hmm. So there is that, like, really, it's a tenuous connection, but it's there. Mm-hmm. And that's really why I wanted to understand that. And I don't know about you, but I never learned any of that in school. No, no. And our town was, I should tell everybody too, that doesn't know our town was filled with, well, lots of different nationalities, which was kind of fascinating. Mm -hmm. A lot of Franco-Americans, French Canadians, Acadians, because um, they came down en masse to the United States, like a million from 1840 or something to 1910. Yeah. It was a huge percentage of the population and they really drove the industrial revolution in America. Mm-hmm. as well as these, I know it's so fascinating. Our town had such oh. a diverse group of 
they did. And, you know, most of our, my friends anyway, grandparents, some, a lot of them did not speak English. They spoke Italian. They spoke Lithuanian. They spoke French. Um, they spoke Irish with a brogue. I mean, English with a brogue. Um, my father had a little Irish lilt because that's how they talked in PEI because there were so many Irish people there. So one, one part, one end of the Island was pretty much Irish and the other was French. Um, and so it's funny that like my friend, Denise Valancourt, uh, who was my second family one or my, you know, side by side family when I was growing up, you know, her, some of her roots are from the same place my roots are from, except French instead the of French Irish. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's kind of where I was going with Anne of Green Gables because <laughs> Anne, poor Anne. So Anne was, you know, represented sort of your side, <laughs> but yes, and that's all anybody knew about Prince Edward Island. When you say Prince Edward Island, mm -hmm. you know, Anne of Green Gables, and I was like, wait a minute, yeah, it's more than that. And then Lucy Maud Montgomery, unfortunately, has some, I would dare say, racist lines in there, but we won't go. <laughs> Sorry, I know you can't, you can't really go back and sort of. I mean, as a book critic, I want to look at that. But as a person who understands like history is history. And that's, yeah. I don't know. So it's complicated. Yeah. That's complicated too. That's like, mm -hmm. for me, even that sort of interaction. Um, yeah. I don't know. Um, it's interesting too. our, even though we have such, our, our stories are very different and very similar. We both at the centerpiece of it is death. I know. And we're both writing very much about life. Which yeah. Is really interesting too. Or at least I shouldn't say, the, I'm just talking about this one book, everybody, right here, because, <laughs> because my Ernie's Ark is not here yet. Yeah. <laughs> but in that book, too, you're, I mean, you're, it's kind of focused on a, a isn't it? A small, it's a small. That's the same town. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And there's a strike. Yeah. Uh, it's nine, it's 10 connected stories that follow the chronology of a labor strike at a paper mill. Um, do, you, do you, did you feel like like doing fiction I mean writing it in fiction how how I did that first so you did oh yeah yeah this Ernie's Ark it's a kind of an anniversary edition I didn't it was first published in 2002 oh yeah so uh and it's been restored with one of the with the original story that was taken out at the beginning is now put back in there was one there were it was published with nine, but there were actually 10. And now it's going to be, it's republished with all 10 stories. Plus an afterword by me about the life of that book, yes, yes. which led to my writing when we were the Kennedys and Papermaker. Now, between fiction and nonfiction and writing about the same town. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Can you talk about that? Like, what are the compromises or what are the things that are? Well, you know, it's funny when I started writing the memoir, Oh my gosh, I had so much trouble with it, trying to get the right voice. Voice. And for you, because yours is not a straight up memoir, the voice is like your voice now. It's you speaking yeah. now. And with, but with mine, because it was um, my experience as a nine year old child, uh, it was more like a reminiscent narrator voice where you have two, you have really yeah. a blended voice. One is the, you know, the adult who's literate and lyrical and educated, da, da, da. and then there's a the child who doesn't know really much of anything. And so you're trying to put that more sophisticated voice using that to channel 
the naive experience. And it's a lot harder than it sounds. It's funny you say that when I was rereading some of this, I had in my margins that kind of exact thing. I was like, oh, wait, she's doing this here. How interesting. Mm. Like you really did it really expertly, I think. But I think of all the lines in that book, it's my favorite line, but of all the lines that explain that, that blended voice, it's, it, it's the first line of one of the chapters. And it, the line is, the Valancourts were catless, but otherwise without flaw. Yes, 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 yes. You know, that was my opinion. Mm-hmm. I could never have summoned those words to express that opinion at age nine. Sure. But you get that sense. It has the kind of the um, outrage of the child thinking, how could anyone live without cats? Right. And yet it's got the word flawless and it's got, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, but it's hard to do. That's but really hard. Of that, I wanted to read a couple things from your book because I thought your writing was so expressive. Um, one of them is the way you describe people sometimes just, there's a lot of humor in it. Um, Thank you for, I know, humor. People forget that. <laughs> I know. I think I'm hilarious. And I think you're don't. hilarious. Yeah, I know. Thank you. Nobody else does. So this one is, if you met Dean Gilbert in a bar years ago, which, which would be the most likely place to meet him years ago, you may not have taken him seriously. In those days, we called him Dino, and he was a boyish, Muppet-like hellraiser who skied like his hair was on fire. And then a little later, you say, um, when I arrive, this is at the Hotel Rumford, where I also used to hang out after college. Of course. <laughs> when I arrive, Dino is already there, drinking vodka with soda water and a splash of crayon out of a pint glass filled with cracked ice. It's the middle of January. He gives me a hug and I order a beer. He wears a hooded flannel shirt, jeans, and a pilly wool cap smashed over his thatch of silvery black hair. He looks a little like a well-loved sofa, which is not a horrible thing. It's not. I, I laughed out loud so when I read that. <laughs> so funny. Thank you. I just loved it. I appreciate you getting yeah. that. Yeah. Oh, I have I have a surprise for you. Look, look what I, a reader from out west somewhere sent me with a letter this what it is a, a menu? menu from the mexico chicken coop oh my from 1977 that's fantastic is oh my god not, wait does it have the chick the turkey bites on it size turkey that's what everybody asks and yes um uh, you may have bite-sized turkey more than one bite for 385. That's what I used to get when we go like for a special birthday or something. We did too. We always got the bite set. And basically it's chicken McNuggets, I'm thinking. With right. Turkey. I think it's turkey. Mixed up with turkey, right. Yeah, but I still dipped it in like ketchup, I think. Oh you get an open face that was very fancy. Open face tuna sandwich for 275. <laughs> and a banana split for a dollar. <laughs> Only if. I, wish- I just about died when I saw this. It was That's just hilarious. so sweet. Um, and he writes me this, this beautiful letter that he was going through Rumford okay. on his honeymoon in 1977. And he had just read my one of my books and was going through some things and found that and uh, emailed me and said, I, I have something I really want to send you. And I'm like, okay, who is this? I, I said, well, what is it? And he said, oh, I was. I wanted it to be a surprise. I said, no, I'm not giving you my address until you, right. until you tell me what you're sending me. Right. A surprise, like yeah. anthrax or something. Yeah, exactly. 
<laughs> uh, he said, no, it's, a, it's from the Mexico chicken coop. I'm like, oh my gosh, thank you. Isn't that great? Oh, it is great. Oh, yeah. I, have a picture of the I want to ask you one more thing because I know we're going to take questions in a minute. But um, how has your because your book is pretty dark, really? Um, yeah. How has it been received at home? Um, it's been, as far as I can tell, um, really well. Oh, good. A couple things have happened, um, or the couple sort of lines of of discussion have happened. One has been like, "Thank you for writing this." It's it's needed to be written. Um, the other thing yeah. was like, thanks for seeing us. Like this is a place mm-hmm. that is isolated and, and, and there's a lot of yeah. issues going on there as I talk about in the book. And, and I yeah. feel like a lot of political leaders haven't been looking at it, you know, on either side of the aisle have not yeah. been looking closely at what's happening in these small manufacturing towns in the yeah. US. So I've been hearing that from not just people in Mexico and Rumford, but yeah, people from all over. I yeah. mean, the only sort of criticism is I, I got booted off a Facebook page that is what? about Rumford. Oh, yeah, they're pretty fussy. Yeah, I didn't say anything, though. Somebody posted my book yeah. on there and they everybody was talking about it, like hundreds of comments. And I, I was know. just watching it and he booted me off because he didn't, he thought I was advertising my book. Yeah. But he's in the book. Um, it's interesting. But that's really, there's been not a lot of, you know, it's been pretty, uh, which, which goes to a question and I'm going to pull something from the chat right now, because it was Tom Beckley that asked this first question. And Tom, if you can tell me, are you the Tom Beckley that I borrowed your dissertation from? Are you that Tom Beckley? I want to yes, Tom Beckley. You are that Tom Beckley. Okay. So <laughs> tuned in from New Brunswick. Okay. So I have his book. Where is it? It's over here. Oh no, I can't, I can't find it right now. Anyway, Tom, so we were just answering your question. He asked, you're uh, sort of, um, you're both critical of certain aspects of Mexico and Rumford, but at the same time, you're both clearly love. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just said what I, I said. I haven't heard anything um, strange from Nestle or anything from the mill. Uh, was yours, how, yours, how was, was yours received? At the well, t- mine was, re- honestly, mine was received with nothing but love. I mean, yeah. it really was. I mean, it was so... So many people would say, thank you for showing people who we are. You know, same idea, like for showing us that this is who we are. This is what we're like. It's a, you know, but um, oddly though, with Ernie's Ark, which came out much earlier than that um, and follows a strike, uh, there were a few people who didn't think that I, that thought I gave too much humanity basically to the CEO character in the book. And, you know, it's, there are no villains in my fiction. Neither. Fiction doesn't have, you know, you, it's all people with problems. Um, So, but that, so that was kind of funny, but as far as the memoir though, no, nothing but utter love and pride and yeah. If you're just joining us, this is Main Currents on WERU-FM. You're listening to a discussion between authors, Carrie Arsenal and Monica Wood called Remembering Maine. It was recorded in October in Blue Hill at the 2020 Word Festival. You feel like I didn't have any villains either, except maybe the regulations that allowed. Yeah, them. right. I also want to go back to Thomas Beckley. So his his he did a dissertation back in 90, early 90, 91 maybe. And he lent me like his only copy of it. There's a copy in the Historic Dis- Society in Rumford, but it was about the forest dependency um, 
from our towns. And it was really fascinating to read. I encourage everybody to go to the Rumford Historical Society and read his dissertation. Um, so that was that question. Um, I loved the Rumford. The I went to there a lot too for when I was researching and uh, it was um, uh, Drew, um, oh, what's her last name? Drew. Oh, um, yeah, I can't think of her name. I know. And at the time, I, she's not there anymore, I don't think, but Myrtle. So Drew and Myrtle. Uh, and they were so great. I mean, they have so many amazing, all the They're old really newsletters from the mill. I'm sure we looked at a lot of the same stuff. Old copies of the Rumford Falls Times, which is has been continually, continuously published since 18... I know, and that's like... 96 or something. Yeah. That's the other treasure trove. I was going to say, there is one complaint I had. So one person, the town's economic, Rumford's economic developer, when he was interviewed in my profile in the Mean Sunday Telegram early in August, he said, well, Carrie's book is about the past. And I told him- it's really not. I told him he should go read Tom Beckley's book, his dissertation. And I don't know if he took my advice, but anyway. So that was, I wanted to ask that question. Here's my sister saying, I always wanted to know where the name Ernie's Art came from because our grandfather, my grandfather, Ernie Pariso. I know. Built, you saw in the book, he built a, like an ark and we used to call it the ark. And so like, anyway. That's not where it came from. It just no. came out of the blue. But I do remember, no, I remember Ernie and Bridget, you know? Um, yeah, characters yeah. both, especially a grandmother. Oh my God. Oh my God. He swore like a pirate. Well, your whole family swore like pirates. I know. I've been really good tonight. <laughs> I'm like, everybody's listening. I don't know. Um, okay, let's see. I'm reading questions. Carrie spoke about spending 10 years writing this book, and Monica spoke about how her story is contained. How did you both decide the story was over? Hmm. Ah. Be ready to put it out into the world. Hmm. Um, well, I think that's a better question for you because this is your first book. Yeah. Uh, for me, you know, you just experience tells you when you've reached the end. I would say that John McPhee wrote something. He said, when you, you know, you're done when you find yourself coming the other way. And when mm-hmm. you're writing something again, and you realize, oh, I wrote that in the first chapter, or I've already mm-hmm. talked about that. Mm-hmm. That's kind of when you know it's over. And yeah. also I had a deadline. So. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> But mostly it was the first thing, I think. Um, yeah, I think sometimes you just know when something has landed where it's supposed to land and it takes, and it's a long time before you know that, but when it does happen, you know. Yeah. And then there's other things I'm still writing about related to the book, but they're separate. You know, you can keep going with other aspects, which is, right. kind of fun, you know, yeah. um, I'd love to hear you both talk about socioeconomic class and the literary world in 2020. How has it impacted both of your writings? Are you asking, hmm. I'm reading that. Do you mean because we're from the working class? Has that impacted us? Is that what you're asking, Gretchen? I'm not sure what that means. That's a really interesting question, though, isn't it? Because I I find that in my... Maybe I shouldn't even go there. Oh, do it. Go. I mean, I still sort of have class issues. I I do. Um, I do. And... You know, I see it sometimes in, I'm not going to be articulate about this because it's, <laughs> oh, 
Okay, you go first. <laughs> okay, okay. So socioeconomic class, it's, mm. it is an interesting question. I'm writing an essay about it, in fact, because if you look behind me, I have I live in this beautiful house built in 1784, and I'm writing with the capital we in the book, and because I feel like I'm from that working class, I am the working class, and people are like, how can you? Some people are saying, how can you say that when you have this other kind of life? Mm-hmm. And I started writing about. I wrote an essay in the New York Review of Books called "My 86 Jobs" because I've had 86 jobs, and I think that mm-hmm. I qualify from being in the working class because most of those were jobs there I said my swear word and um but also the where you're from and that's what kind of both of our books all of our work is about is about where we're from and if you're if the landscape defines you that much then I still think you can consider yourself the working class I don't care what I don't care if you are a lawyer or doctor now Mm -hmm. I would still if I were that I would still say I'm from the working class you Mm -hmm. know because there's something that's in your it's in your blood it's in your work ethic it's in your it's in mm-hmm. everything you think about. And we obviously do because all of our writing has been around that town or around that landscape. So I don't know if that's the question. I mean, it it has definitely, I'm 53 years old and this is my first book published. And, you know, I didn't write, I haven't written since probably 1991 until I started writing this book because I had 86 jobs because what, how could I have the luxury of writing? Right. I mean, really, the only thing that afforded me to be able to write was getting married to my husband. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And allowing- well, ditto. You right? know? I mean, I, I, you know, if you marry somebody who's gainfully employed, if you want to be a writer, you yeah. know, well, I, I, I'm going to just tell one story about that. First of all, I deeply, deeply believe that where you're from is who you are. Absolutely. Um, uh, it, well, not for everyone. Like some people move around and all of that, but but even that defines them in a, in a different way, right? I moved everywhere. <laughs> yeah, but not as a child is what I'm saying, yeah, yeah, you know? Yeah. So your formative time, like your childhood and adolescence, that's who you are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, I mean, I, in some ways, I mean, not exactly monetarily, but socially, I'm in a different social class from the one I grew up in. So it's very weird in some ways to have one foot in both Correct. worlds. Correct. Um, but when you have one foot in both worlds, you tend to be a little, almost like a bitey dog when people say things that are so, like if I hear the word white trash again in my life, that word just sets my hair on fire. Mm-hmm. I really hate it because I feel like they're talking about, you know, my husband's cousins or, you know, people who happen to live in mobile homes, which is a perfectly reasonable, affordable place where millions of people live. So, you know, anyway, so it's stuff like that. Uh, But it's not out of malice. It's just out of ignorance because they didn't grow up around anything like that. And it's very easy to make those. And there's a whole passage in your book that deals with that exact thing about quote Trump voters and who people think they are and who they really are and how complicated it actually is. So anyway, so I just want to say one little story when I was, um, Mm. when I was working on Papermaker with the first cast. So the playwright gets to do everything the first time around it was with Portland stage and we had a, a beautiful cast and, um, None of them, well, with a couple of exceptions, had grown up in the, quote, blue collar, you know. So I, you know, it's about this paper mill. So I said, I think we should take a field trip 
up to Rumford. Oh, right. I heard about this. Yeah. And we had, we got in a van and the, the um, stage manager drove us up miles and we're, it was like a little camp trip, you know, we're right. singing and looking. And then we we came up through 108, like up through Smith yeah. Crossing. Yeah. And it's quite a sight because Dramatic. Say, yeah. okay, everybody, you're about to see it. I don't know what they were picturing, but there was a collective gasp. Wow. In that van, when we rounded the corner and looked down and there was the, I mean, it's massive. It is yeah. massive. And uh, they had never seen a paper mill. No one in that van had ever seen a paper mill. And when we were going through, I was, cause I'd been through the mill several times, but I'm looking at everybody and seeing, and they are their character. Like the guy playing the CEO is thinking, okay, I own all of this. What, what am I seeing? Mm-hmm. And uh, a couple of the others, I work here. What am I seeing? And it was a profound experience for all wow. of them. And I could see, this was early on. It was like the first week of rehearsal. And when we came back, I could see the difference in how they wow. did the characters. It was really amazing. That's so fortunate. My mill mm-hmm. visit was not as wonderful. Yeah. But I will take lessons from yours. <laughs> wow. That's so true. Yeah, that that thing about the that, that it's interesting you point out that, that passage about the Trump voters because I actually had to fight to get that in there. Really? Oh, I thought it was very wise and very insightful. Very people were nervous about it. People not like us. Let's just say. Well, people in the New York publishing world who don't don't have any idea about this. They don't. They don't know. Yeah, I'm glad I kept it. And I'm glad, thank you for, thank you for um, that. And I, I feel exactly the same way. I get so, I get so mad. I get like, not, not, it's not the word white trash. It's, it's things like the, the Trump, you know, it's that thing in the New York Times where she said they cling to their obstinacy, which, yeah. which really bothered me because it sounds like cling to their guns. And I'm yeah, like, yeah, yeah. What? Yeah. I have a gun, it's downstairs. I go hunting, so what? Yeah. Clinging, I just- yeah. I didn't characterize people that way. And it really, it just made, it makes my head spin, but I yeah. agree with you completely. And I'm glad to hear that I have a like-minded. Yeah. In that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I'm really sensitive to those things. Super well, sensitive. Yeah. Um, so thank you for the question, Gretchen. And Bernadette is here. Bernadette. Oh, Bernadette. She's the best. Re- Do you know Bernadette? She married me and my husband. What? Yes. She married us. Oh, hi, Bernadette. Wherever you are on here, I can't she's see anybody. I don't know if she has a question. Maybe she's a comment. As a former Pinto, <laughs> I read both Monica and Carrie's books are that they are beautifully, oh, this is embarrassing, beautifully vivid and truthful and show the love for a place and people. In Milltown, I think Carrie exposes questions that we should all have been asking ourselves about the environmental issues. I worked in the mill for a few summers. I have not lived there yeah. since 1985. Yeah. Kelly, my sister says Dino is the best. Yes. <laughs> Dino had a crush on Kelly growing up. Um, um, is there any other questions? Let's see. Um, I like people's comments. They're really nice. Um, I'm Harriet, looking at them right now. Yeah. Carrie, yeah. it sounds like this was an investigative journalism, but mixed with <laughs> memoir since you knew the town. Um, I, I did not, I did not have a I was writing a nonfiction book. I didn't say I'm going to do an investigative memoir. I didn't say I'm going to do a memoir. I didn't say anything about memoir. In fact, I de- denied doing a memoir at all. It's um, because, it, well, so I just wrote what came. I followed the lines of inquiry and it became, I think it's really a mix of an, a memoir, an investigative memoir, um, a narrative nonfiction book. It's yeah. 
it, it, it's really um, a, a cultural criticism too, in a lot of ways, like Anna yeah. Fables and Trump things. Yeah. And, um, it's a lot of things. And, and somebody, there was a, a geographer in the UK that called it autoethnography, which I thought was a great term. And nobody wanted to use that because it's- No, because, no, that's, you said that on main calling. I'm like, she cannot say that ever. <laughs> is that the one you said? Nobody knows what it is. No, my public- like, like, No, don't do that, honey. My publicist is like, no. <laughs> He's yeah. like, you can talk about it, but you cannot put that on. Anyway, yeah. So, yeah. Um, so Gretchen, yeah, it was all of those things at once. So it's a new genre. <laughs> there you go. You're a trailblazer, my friend. Um, um, Deborah, the link to that essay, if you just type in 86 jobs, carry arsenal. Well, I'll have to read it'll pop, that. It'll pop right up. Um, good. Oh, somebody posted it. Um, oh, good. Um, questions. I'm looking for questions. Kelly, high level of intelligence of people from Mexico and Rumford, of course. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I know you did. That was a great thing to take the cast there. I should tell people you, um, um, I went to the mill and my tour was so brief and, they don't Wait, really and you had never been there before. No, I had wanted to. Amazing. Go no. Because I when I was, I remember um, in elementary school going to the mill or maybe it was high school, but I, I think all the kids at some point in there, at least when I was in school, at some point we all got a tour of the mill. Well, if you think about it, by the time I was in that age, it was like Boise Cascade owned it. So it was yeah, a it was, yeah you're right. It wasn't the Oxford Paper Company. It yeah. was down, so they weren't so, and they did do tours, but you had to schedule it. And I was like, yeah why the hell would I want to do a tour of the mill? Yeah. You know, at that age in high school, like, why would I want to go there? Like, get me the hell out of here, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. God, um, yeah, I really would love, love to, love mm -hmm. to. Um, let me see. What's oh, there. somebody says, I saw Papermaker in Blue Hill, the new Surrey theater. That is oh, the yeah. one production I didn't see. And it's because um, there was something else, another, I, it might've been this, I can't remember. I think, oh, I know because my play, The Half Light, was going on at the same time. So I couldn't get up there. Oh, I've okay. seen every, um, there were two in New York State. I went to see the one of those. Uh, and I saw all the ones in me except the Blue Hill. But I, you know, whenever anybody does it, I really want to go see it. Cause you know, you know, with plays, it's not like books, you know, you can't, they don't live very long. Yeah. Oh, is that, yeah. I mean, if it ever comes, if there's some repri reprise of it, I need to go see it. You need well, to it was going to be in Connecticut um, now, now, except COVID, you know, forget it. It was in uh, Hartford. Yeah. Oh my God. I'm like 45 minutes from Hartford. I know. I know. But COVID ruined that along with everything else. There's some one more question. And this is, everybody always asks this. What are you working on now? Oh. <laughs> I can ask it. I mean, I don't know. I'm yeah. I don't know. Do you want to say? I don't know. I'm working on a novel. I just finished a very solid first draft of a novel. And wow. I'm, I'm now on a kind of a reading binge for till the end of October. And then on November 1st, I'm going to dig into the first draft. Are you I mean, the second draft. Are you reading things for your novel to inform no. your novel? No, you read no, opposite. totally for pleasure right now. Oh, okay, nice. That's what yeah. I'm going to do over Christmas, I think. Yeah. Oh, my God. Okay, well, you have to read this thing I just read. It's called, it's not a new novel. It's called How I Became a Famous Novelist. That's oh. the title of the book, and it is so funny. I have to go to. I'm it's a total send-up of the writing biz. You will okay. love it. 
I think it's by Steve Healy, H-E-L-Y. Okay, I'm writing it down. Yeah. And well, you're working on some essays or? I'm working on a million things. Um, I don't know. I have this giant list. I have like a four page to-do list. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm basically doing this book full time and I'm doing a lot of right. like, events till Christmas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm working on a lot of different essays for like and book reviews and pitches, as well as I have a novel that I want to write. Oh, wow. So I'm going to start writing the proposal for that. I'm, I'm not the proposal, but start writing the novel, a proposal for a, 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 another nonfiction book, and then a big proposal for a big book review that I want to do, a complicated book review for like the New York Review of Books or something like that. Good. So, wow. Busy. That's I great. Know, too busy, but I'm excited. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's really good. Yeah. Well, it's been a blast and a pleasure. Let's do this again. I know. Really fun. I really enjoy it. Sorry I had to meet you over Zoom, but someday we'll get together. At least I get you face-to-face like for an hour to myself. Like that's how I (laughs) Yeah. It's pretty great. It is pretty great. Yeah. All right. For Word and Blue Hill, I want to thank both Carrie and Monica for joining us tonight and and giving us a, a... We wish you could be here and we could all meet you in person, but this has been... Like a really effervescent, lovely um, experience, and will help us get through our our the winter of our of our COVID lockdown. Yeah. <laughs> um, I want to let everyone know that um, that you can order copies of all of these writers. Well, Carrie just says the one, but. <laughs> from blue hill books um support your local bookstore there please support your local bookstore very involved please. i have a list of them on my website if you can't find one just go and click on any of them oh great yeah um but thank you both again and we hope that someday soon you'll be here in person i hope uh, so i'm planning on it <laughs> Authors Carrie Arsenal and Monica Wood recorded at the online 2020 Word Festival in Blue Hill in October. You can learn more about their work at their websites, carrie-arsenal.com and monicawood.com, and also check out the Word Festival at wordfestival.org. This is Maine Currents Independent Local News, Views, and Culture. I'm Amy Brown. Catch us here on the first Tuesday of every month at 4 p.m. or listen to our archived programs anytime at weru.org. Stay tuned for Radio EcoShot coming up next here on Community Radio, WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, and streaming online at weru.org.